Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Fight hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over a hundred years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Oral History Institute, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On today's show, Waco's hometown hero, Doris Miller. Dr. Mike Parrish, a history professor from Baylor University who literally wrote the book on Doris Miller, joins us to talk about Miller's historic story. He helped save his captain, jumped into the water, and helped save the lives of several sailors who were struggling to swim. And also to reflect on his legacy. And now, come with us on a journey into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos we got another guest in the studio today, Stephen. We have... Mike Parrish, welcome to the Waco History Podcast. Thank you very much. So Mike is a colleague in the History Department at Baylor University. Excellent. So we brought you in today to talk about Doris Miller, and you have a book here in front of you, so you want to yeah. tell us about that? This book began as you know part of a larger project. From time to time in the past, I've taught a graduate seminar on public history. The short definition of public history is history that engages the general public, history outside the the walls of academia. Here in Waco, we have a project ongoing to create a memorial to Doris Miller, Waco's hometown World War II hero, a memorial uh, that will include a a larger-than-life statue, which has already been unveiled, a small park, an area where Kids can come, tourists can come, people from the community and all over all over Texas can come and enjoy a little a little history and understand the importance and the inspiration that Doris Miller uh, provides even to this day. So I know some of the broad strokes of yeah. his story, but for those who don't know, can you kind of describe who he is? Let's just kind of start from the beginning. Who he is. I love the way you talk about history in the present tense, which is not altogether improper because history lives yeah and uh, we cannot escape it whether we like it or not he was an african-american who was an unlikely hero he grew up in in very modest circumstances part of a very poor family of sharecroppers who farmed land out near spiegelville uh, land that is now underwater Uh, There's no longer a Spiegelville, and his uh, brothers and uh, parents had a hard scrabble life, especially during the 1920s and 1930s, as cotton prices stagnated and then began to drop, and the uh, Great Depression came on and uh, created a lot of suffering, particularly people who were already struggling economically. He, He went to the old black high school in Waco, A.J. Moore, A.J. Moore Academy, as it was called, and uh, he wasn't the best student by any means. He didn't like school very much. He was a hard worker, 
He uh, had odd jobs in the Waco community. He, he sometimes worked uh, in a restaurant, in the kitchen, and as a busboy. Most of all, he was known for his athletic prowess. He was a great, powerful young man. Even as a teenager, he began to become very, very proficient in various sports, especially as a boxer, but in particular as a football player. He uh, was the uh, starting fullback on the A.J. Moore football team. And so by the time he was 17, 18 years old, he was well over six feet tall, well over 200 pounds, and very, very powerful. Because he didn't enjoy school, because he didn't feel like he was really creating opportunity for his family, uh, he decided that he would join the military. So in effect, he wanted to escape the Depression. And so he decided he, he would join the Navy. This was 1940, 1941, when he was inducted and went through training. The Navy was a problematic choice. Yeah, can you talk about what it meant to be particularly African-American yeah. uh, in the Navy during yeah. this time period? He had a kind of romantic fascination with the sea and adventure. He joined the Navy to try to expand his horizons and, and to get away, but he knew that he would have to do very, very difficult work. Being an African-American in the Navy was very, very challenging because you were at the, the bottom of the totem pole. Sailors, generally, of all the branches of service, sailors have been subject to ill treatment and even abuse uh, over the centuries, but particularly sailors of color. And so he was relegated to the worst kinds of, of duty aboard ship. He was, he was classified as a messman. Mm -hmm. which meant he was responsible for doing anything that any white person, either an officer or a regular enlisted sailor on board ship, ordered him to do. So he spent a lot of time in the kitchen cleaning up after meals, collecting laundry. In fact, on December 7th, 1941, early in the morning there at Pearl Harbor, he was, he was collecting laundry. Let me say this, too, that this was a different world socially. White people, particularly in the South, including Texas, white people could treat African Americans with, with disrespect and suffer no repercussion, <coughs> no challenge. In the Navy, African American sailors like Doris Miller were disrespected to an extreme degree. Very few sailors and certainly very few officers even knew the names uh, or could remember the names very well of, of African Americans on, on, on board ship. It was easy to dominate them and uh, in many ways easy to ignore them. And certainly it was easy to take them for granted. Uh, what do we know, uh, Mike, of his career up to the West Virginia or yeah. th this moment on the West Virginia that he's known for? Yeah. Yeah, well, he went, he went through basic training. He was trained to work not only as a messman, but he had a battle station, as did everyone on board ship. And he was trained to service, so to speak, service a, a gunnery crew, an anti-aircraft 50 caliber uh, machine gun, make sure that there was uh, plenty of uh, ammunition available for the crew, which was all white. But he and, you know, several other African-American uh, sailors were part of this service sub-crew to the uh, gunnery crew. So he was trained in doing that. So he became familiar with the weapon that would uh, eventually make him a hero at, at Pearl Harbor. He he spent time stateside at various locations before he was finally assigned to 
Pearl Harbor, where the Pacific Fleet, most of the Pacific Fleet, in fact, nearly all of it, except for aircraft carriers, was there sitting, <laughs> waiting, not, ne- <laughs> not necessarily waiting for an attack, but certainly vulnerable right. to a surprise attack there, there at Pearl Harbor in December of uh, 1941. Now, you mentioned he had been familiar with a 50 millimeter, but he had. N- it, we don't know that he'd ever manned one no. or been trained no. to operate yeah. one, yeah. Yeah, 50, yeah. 50 caliber. I mean, 50 caliber, 50, 50 caliber. Yeah. 50 millimeter, that yeah, would <laughs> that'd be a big gun. <laughs> sorry. He, he could have could have done some damage with, with that. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was familiar. And, and, of course, as a kid, he had grown up using a, a rifle. Yeah. Uh, they're out in the woods. Uh, you know, he and his brothers would love to go hunting. They would, you know, bring in small game to uh, help feed his family. And uh, he even dabbled a little bit in taxidermy. So he was he was familiar with, with firing a gun. And he was a good marksman. He had a reputation for being a skilled marksman. I would also assume that if he knew how to properly feed the ammunition into the gun, that's yeah. one of the harder parts. Yeah. Know, pulling the trigger, and if you're a good marksman already, may not be that far of a stretch. Yeah. He didn't seem to be overwhelmed at all mm-hmm. about manning the weapon by himself, doing his best to uh, shoot at dive bombers and torpedo planes that were you know, buzzing around all over the place. Well, we're kind of jumping ahead here. Yeah. Why don't we kind of, since we've kind of talked about his backstory a little bit, yeah. let's kind of run through the day. What would the day have looked like for him on the, the day that will live in infamy? It was peaceful, and it was Sunday morning. Everything was quiet. There had been rumblings of a possibility, a Japanese attack, but intelligence people, diplomatic people, and the military on the scene, the high command at at Pearl Harbor, both Army and Navy commanders, didn't take these these rumors uh, very, very seriously at all. And so they were almost totally unprepared. The fact that the Japanese did achieve almost total surprise in attacking the, the Pacific Fleet, which was totally stationary and vulnerable. The fact that they achieved total surprise really should come at, at, as no shock. So I don't know that much about naval history, but yeah. I was in the Navy myself. Oh, I was actually also, I was stationed in Yokosuka, Japan, yeah. aboard USS Kitty Hawk. And from what we know from people talking about it and just the geography of actually traveling from Japan to Hawaii, yeah, it's quite a trek. And so I would assume that putting all your resources that far over stateside, you know, yeah. closer to the states, yeah. would seem like something they probably wouldn't try. And so that's yeah. maybe why the people in charge thought this isn't probably going to happen. It was a long, long way for a fleet to mm-hmm. travel, particularly when you consider that there were, you know, there were scout planes out. Uh, the scout planes missed the, the Japanese Navy. There was a, a kind of crude effort at radar and other kinds of detection, which did not prove effective at all. A blip or two showed up on one screen, and it was considered to be, you know, just a phantom effect. And so everyone was surprised when the first wave of, of planes flew across the islands toward Oahu. The best movie is not the most recent Pearl Harbor movie featuring Cuba Gooding as as Doris Miller, but it's the uh, 1970s movie simply called Tora, 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 which was the message that Japanese airmen sent back to the uh, the fleet saying, tiger, tiger, tiger. That was the code message for total surprise. 
Interesting. So events are going to move fast when the Japanese show up. But I, yeah. I'm interested in so Miller's actions that day. Yeah. And kind of views around and perspectives we have on what he did <clears throat> or what he didn't do. Yeah. And, and, and of course, as a historian, I'm interested in the source material you got in as you try yeah. to tease apart what happened or, yeah. or, or what may have happened, what happened and what right. might have happened. Can you right. talk a little bit about events that day? Yeah. Yeah, sure. He, as I said, was making the rounds, you know, collecting laundry when the first bombs hit from overhead and then a, a succession of cor- torpedoes smashed into the West Virginia. And so the battleship, a huge battleship, very, very quickly began to sink and it began to list to one side and fire broke out all over the top side as well as as below decks and chaos reigned supreme miller tried you know very very quickly to to get to his battle station but he had great great difficulty even getting there because of all the explosions and the fires chaos uh, conflicting orders were were flying uh, you know every every which direction and he finally got to the uh, the gun and uh, the crew was not there the crew had been knocked out and so he was the only one there available and a couple of other junior officers were on the scene he just decided on his own with support from one of the officers to take over the gun and, and begin firing uh, the best that he could at the uh, the Japanese planes. There are eyewitness accounts. There are oral history interviews. Uh, so much is available on the internet now. There were newspaper accounts published very, very short, shortly afterward or long after the fact, you know, virtually all the way up to the present day from participants who were very, very well aware at, at what was happening. So walk us through it. So I, I want the minute by minute. He gets to his battle station. Yeah. Everybody's knocked out. Yeah. Some junior officers are there. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to man this gun. And they yeah. say, uh, go ahead, I guess. <laughs> well, before before he could do that, before he took the initiative to do that, which was remarkable in itself, he was ordered by an officer to help the commander of, of the vessel, Mervyn Binion, Captain Mervyn Binion, who had been uh, wounded very badly and would shortly die of his of his wounds, helped drag his captain to a to a place of of safety on the bridge so that he wouldn't be so uh, vulnerable to the Japanese gunfire. He, he did that, and and uh, to his credit, you know, more than any other person there, one or two officers, as I said, because he was so strong, he so practically he's... lifted up his captain on his own. So he's lifting this guy and. Yeah. We're assuming he's going up or down several decks to get there. Well, uh, he did. He did have to go up at least one level and traverse an area that was very, very vulnerable, and bullets were just flying all over the place. Wow. Yeah. Once the captain uh, re- reached a spot of safety, he continued to issue orders through through the junior officers to um, the survivors uh, among the crew, including Miller. But Miller largely took the initiative on his own to man the anti-aircraft weapon and begin firing it as best he could. Lots of of stories, including some put forth by Miller himself uh, (laughs) as time went on, you know, claimed that, that he not only, you know, shot the weapon with great acumen and skill, but that he hit one, two, three, four. You know, when he was interviewed after the fact, he, he would say, well, I think I hit 
one or two. And maybe, you know, one of the planes went down, but I can't be sure. And then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, 25. and he was encur- encouraged. Well, don't sure. you don't you think, you know, the interviewers would say, well, I heard that you hit two or three, you know, and <laughs> and he would say, well, maybe, you know, maybe I did, you know, two or three. And it's only human nature. Right. Yeah. But the forensic evidence and we were very painstaking about this, the forensic evidence about all of the Japanese aircraft that were brought down uh, during the attack indicates that Miller did not shoot down one plane. Uh, the Pearl Harbor movie featuring Cuba Gooding Jr. shows him, you know, shooting down, you know, one or two or three, you know, and there are just there are flames flying everywhere, and it's very sensational. So not he, a single one? No. He may, <laughs> he may have hit. He may have hit one or two or three, but he certainly did not bring down a single plane. And, of course, there's some irony and even a a degree of controversy in all of this in that people want to believe. You know, people want to think that a hero not only demonstrated great courage and bravery under stress, but that he he was effective. And particularly in the African-American community, they are just adamant that, yeah, he did. He did hit Japanese planes, and he he shot down several. And the numbers are, you know, five, six, seven. And maybe even he's, you know, he saved America from invasion by the Japanese, you know. <laughs> I feel like we should give him a few. Oh, I mean, come well, on. why not? You know, <laughs> what, not? what that view discounts, though, is that that's the most important yeah. thing. I yeah. mean, and yeah. and that's not the most important thing. The, the fact, the bravery that he demonstrated in yes. doing what he did and how that's radical. Right. Yeah, he took the initiative and he was cool. He was cool under very, very difficult circumstances. A lot of other sailors were jumping overboard, abandoning ship. Mm-hmm. And in fact, after he ran out of ammunition, after about 15 minutes, because he was such a good swimmer, and believe it or not, a lot of sailors at the time were not good swimmers. In fact, That's still a, a thing today. Oh, is it really? <laughs> That's too bad. All this water. They uh, do train you in, in boot camp, but you'd be surprised at the amount of people who come into boot camp and can't swim. Oh, <laughs> that's disheartening. Yeah. I, I want to go back to, I don't know if you've ever been on a naval vessel, but yeah. the ladder well to go from deck to deck is yeah. pretty much just a ladder. I mean, it's straight up. And yeah. taking somebody that's like, right. on my back up or down that's one right. level, that's I'm pretty right. much out of energy at that point, that's right. I would think. That's right. And that's yes. just the beginning of his yeah. little tour of heroics, right? <clears throat> that's right. There's a big push, not only in the African-American community, but a big push among among the people of Waco. And, and it's gone on for quite some time for, for Doris Miller to be awarded the, uh, you know, the Congressional Medal of Honor. His captain, whom he saved and allowed to continue to command the vessel, did receive a posthumous Congressional Medal of Honor. And lots of other officers, mainly officers who were serving at Pearl Harbor at the time, some survived and some didn't. Lots of other naval personnel, I can't remember exactly how many dozen, did receive the Congressional Medal of Honor at the time. Everyone's white. Every one of them. Hmm. And so this helps us understand more fully why the Navy resisted giving him any kind of credit, much less a Congressional Medal of Honor, for a very long time after Pearl Harbor. You know, he helped save his captain, jumped into the water and helped save the lives of, of several sailors who were struggling to swim. And yet he did not 
get full credit at all for, for doing, doing anything of that nature for, for uh, several months. I'm going to make some more historic assumptions. If you're firing a 50 cal machine gun from yeah. a ship that's listing, yeah. I would assume that would, have, that would affect your accuracy as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, he, he was asked, you know, after the fact, uh, didn't you find it difficult to, to do all this, all this exertion, all this courageous action, and then f- fire the weapon on top of that? He said, oh, I'd seen the, the gunnery crew operate. I knew how the mechanism worked. I knew to keep the, the am- In other words, he was doing his job. Yeah, the, uh, feeding uh, feeding, it in feeding the Feeding uh, the ammunition belt and, and firing uh, virtually all at, the, all at the same time. He said, no, I just p- pulled the trigger, and, and she worked real easy. <laughs> yeah, so he kind of he downplayed it. But the Navy, you know, rumors began to circulate about this, this brave black messman. You know, what, what's up with that? What, what happened? You know, and the Navy would, uh, denied that uh, anything unusual had happened, but really put pressure on them to acknowledge the fact that, that Doris Miller was, was a hero was the African-American press. The African-American press in the North at this time was in its heyday, 1920s, 30s, 40s, and into the 50s. Truly professional and determined and absolutely crucial to the civil rights movement. What historians refer to now as the long civil rights movement. You know, we keep pushing things back all the way into the 19th and 18th century when did the civil rights movement began? Well, it, it began from the time that, that African Americans visualized themselves as not only free, but equal and full citizens. And so that's what the African American press wanted to accomplish. They wanted to bring full credit to uh, people like Doris Miller in order to, to achieve a, a bigger purpose. And uh, that, was, that was equality and, and full citizenship for African-American heroes, but African-Americans generally. And so they put a lot of pressure on the Navy Department. They demanded, they, you know, and finally the African-American press pulled political strings. They contacted uh, friends of theirs, particularly in Congress, who depended upon the, uh, the black vote in the North. Democrats and Republicans alike depended upon the black vote. And finally, indir- indirectly, but ultimately, directly put pressure on the White House. They demanded action by the White House to have the Navy, first of all, acknowledge that it happened and identify uh, Doris Miller and then to bring Dory home. The Navy didn't want to call him Doris. They, they preferred to call him Dory. To bring Dory home and have him go on a tour. Heroes uh, during the war were, you know, very often brought home to help raise money for war bonds and engage in, in recruitment and that kind of thing and, and to, you know, just publicize the war effort and get everyone involved and engaged. And so that, that, was, the, um, that was the immediate purpose, you know, mm-hmm. to bring, bring Dory home, <clears throat> have him tour the country, and ultimately to, to have him help fulfill the, uh, the agenda, the goals of the civil rights movement. So he's active duty... All of this happens on the Pearl Harbor attack. Yeah. How long of a time from that day to when he's brought home 
yeah. because it sounds like it was quite a while. Was he active yeah. duty this whole time? Oh yeah, he he was active 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 duty. Not only did they want recognition and for Doris Miller to uh, come stateside, they wanted him to be awarded, uh, if not a Congressional Medal of Honor, a great a great honor of some kind. And the Navy did not want to do it, but finally relented and agreed to have him awarded the uh, Navy Cross. And so he was the first African-American in, in the Navy to receive a distinction of that level in its history. And he was awarded the uh, Navy Cross in a ceremony on, on board the, the flight deck of the USS Enterprise at Pearl Harbor in uh, May of 1942. Chester Nimitz, Admiral Chester Nimitz, a fellow Texan from Fredericksburg, Texas, pinned the, uh, the Navy Cross on his, on his uniform. He was dressed in whites, formal whites. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know all, them well. Yeah. I've worn them. <laughs> okay. All the other recipients of awards, medals, uh, distinctions on that day, of course, were all were white and all the others were officers. And the photographs of the, uh, the ceremony show the wreckage of the Pearl Harbor attack uh, mm. still in the background. It, it would take a long time for that to be cleared away. He became quite quite a celebrity from that point forward, very very quickly. Can you talk a little bit? I know you know jumping ahead. It yeah, does, he's going to have a short period of celebrity, but how that affected his life or opportunities that opened yeah. up for him, how it's received back <coughs> home. Just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's a complicated story. Of course, was was lauded by the uh, African American community. Uh, you know, in the press, he he gave multiple interviews, and we managed to track all of those down. You know, the thing that comes across was the fact that he 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 was willing to embrace his celebrity and go along with the the stories that that were being told about him to a degree, but. He didn't, he didn't let it go to his head. He didn't boast and brag too much. He insisted on continuing a modest demeanor. He was willing to take advantage of the uh, increasing opportunities. That's another thing the African-American press and politicians wanted to do at the time was increase the opportunities for African-American sailors, you know, to give, give them real training, give them meaningful battle stations, give them more responsibility, and eventually uh, even consider the prospect of, of making, them, making them officers. And so by the, you know, the late 1940s, early, early 1950s, there were, you know, several uh, cadets at, at the Naval Academy who were, who were African-American. And eventually as well, you know, desegregate the Navy, uh, open it up with Truman, President Harry Truman's executive order around the same time, uh, desegregate, in theory anyway, desegregate all of the armed forces. Every time the African-American press would mention Doris Miller and take advantage of his celebrity and his heroism and point to him as a great American patriot, they would talk about these ultimate goals. And so, you know, the title of the book is apt in that regard. Doris Miller uh, wasn't simply a footnote. He wasn't simply what my, my dad used to re- refer to as postage stamp history, a minor character, an accident of, of history. He was a major, major figure. Everybody in the black community knew who Doris Miller was, and they lionized him. They praised him. They mentioned his name over and over and over again in connection with these lofty, lofty goals of desegregation and equality. 
And so he, he was a real vehicle. He was a real force. He was a catalyst for achieving the ultimate goals of the civil rights movement at the time. And, but the irony, and it's no surprise really when you think about it, is that white people generally did not know who Doris Miller was. And if they heard his name, they didn't care. They ignored the fact that he was a great hero, and they did their best to ignore the agenda of the civil rights movement. You know, my dad was in the Navy during World War II. In fact, he was at Pearl Harbor on board a ship, a repair ship called the Vestal. It was tied up to the uh, USS Arizona, and he was just a few hundred yards away from Doris Miller. I asked him when I, I was working on the book, uh, doing the research, I said, well, what, what did you think of Doris Miller at the time? And he said, well, I didn't know anything about it. Mm. I'd never heard of him. The Navy didn't tell me anything about Doris Miller. Two separate worlds, mm-hmm. two separate worlds, two separate worlds that, that persisted through the war. And I said, you didn't hear about Doris Miller during the war at all? He said, no. Through the war, after the war, And it wasn't until we moved to Waco in the 1960s that my dad finally heard the name Doris Miller and understood exactly who he was. That speaks volumes Mm -hmm. about the difficulty of simply connecting, you know, these two these two worlds for the sake of the civil rights movement. So if the Navy wasn't telling anybody about this, how did the black press and other black people find out about this? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, as I, as I said, yeah, word of mouth. There were, there were rumors. And the, the African-American press was very, very persistent in, you know, tracking down and verifying the rumors and then actually communicating with Doris Miller himself, you know, writing letters to him, sending telegrams, finally interviewing him when he did come stateside to, uh, to go on the tours, pushing, pushing, pushing all the time. It took the press. It took politicians in Congress. And it took the White House, too, to force the Navy to recognize him, to award him, and to use him in, in promoting the, uh, you know, the very, very gradual but persistent goal of, of desegregating, desegregating the Navy and providing you know, greater opportunities for, for African-American sailors. There's a theory called, in social science, called uh, interest convergence. It applies to race theory uh, in the United States, the, the notion of converging interests. The Navy finally realized that it was in their best interest to agree to gradual desegregation. And that's what happened throughout the military, throughout the, all the, the branches of the military. They finally realized that, and this happened, this is a persistent pattern in American wars throughout history, the realization that we need manpower and that African Americans can make good soldiers and sailors and that they can even, if trained properly like, like white soldiers and white sailors, they can command. That's, there was a convergence of interests in that regard. You can be cynical and say, well, you know, it wouldn't have happened unless they realized it was to their advantage. The, uh, the African-American community, African-American leaders, civil rights leaders were willing to take whatever they could get and to take advantage of opportunity to press forward, to achieve uh, desegregation and to push, continue to push for equality and full citizenship. Yeah. I would say that their goals were at least somewhat realized because I will often tell people that 
my education in diversity was yeah. was best when I was in the Navy because yeah. the places I've lived have not been nearly as diverse as the Navy. I've had several really good yeah. African-American leaders yeah. while I was in the Navy, yeah. and they are fully competent and yeah. fully equal yeah. to all of the white counterparts, Yeah, in my opinion. No doubt the military has done the best job of uh, socialization in diversity and equal opportunity. There's no question about that. And as I mentioned earlier, Doris Miller took the opportunity to get some training as um, part of a gunnery crew using a larger weapon, larger anti-aircraft weapon, because he was such a, a good marksman. And so that was quite a step up for him. But his, his ambition uh, didn't really go much beyond that. And, and he, had, he had a lot of concerns about the effects of his heroism and celebrity upon his fellow black sailors. He was worried that they would be that they would be jealous. And he was worried that white sailors would would be even more jealous hmm. and might prove dangerous to him. When he was home on leave a little later on, he told people that he didn't expect to return. You know, he didn't think he would he would come back. People ask him, well, why not? And he said, well, I'm not necessarily too popular on, on board ship. Very, very interesting and, and, and sad and, and tragic to a degree. So that, that gives you an idea of just how far the Navy and society needed to go to fully, fully integrate African-American sailors into a crew. And, of course, the sad news there is Miller doesn't come back. He doesn't come back. Uh, can, can you share just— Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't harmed by fellow crew members. He, he died in the line of duty in November 1943 on board a small aircraft carrier. It was built very cheaply, very quickly, and there were lots of them built uh, at the time a so-called baby carrier, the Liscombe Bay was what it, what it was called. In the heat of the island-hopping campaigns by the, by the Navy, at a particularly vicious place uh, called Tarawa. You know, strangely, my dad was, was also at, at Tarawa. He was a naval officer who was attached to the Marines as a spotter. And so he carried a radio with him during a, a Marine landing, I think, during the second wave or maybe the third wave of Marines that landed at, at Tarawa. He carried a grid map with him and he delivered orders to Navy dive bombers. Tarawa had been bombed earlier by uh, naval artillery, but the Japanese were very well dug in. The most menacing thing to, to American ships in the vicinity, however, were a few Japanese submarines. And so the Liscombe Bay carried not only aircraft on its uh, flight deck, but also it carried a lot of munitions, a lot of, you know, very, very explosive munitions. And one torpedo was all it took to sink this, uh, this small carrier. It was the biggest loss of life other than the Arizona in the history of the Navy at any time uh, during World War II or otherwise. Over 600 naval personnel were lost, and there were a few hundred survivors, but Doris Miller was not one. He was lost in action and, and presumed dead. In a really cruel twist of fate, his parents received the, the news in the form of a telegram that arrived on December 7th, 1943. Hmm. And they were, they were absolutely devastated. This helped to, to really harden 
the attitude of Doris Miller's father, Connery Miller, about the prospect of the civil rights movement achieving full equality for African Americans. He, he simply, you know, did not have much faith. He saw too much racism, too much resistance in order to be very optimistic. And there were many African Americans who felt the same way. They felt that, you know, despite what, you know, might appear as progress, they, they felt that there was just so much resistance and that it was entrenched and that there was very, very little hope, even after the war in the late 1940s, that there was, you know, very, very little hope. Again, I say this uh, with regard to, to Doris Miller's father, because, I mean, he had lost his son. Right. So he was not optimistic uh, about the future. Other African-Americans, particularly African-American leaders, were, you know, absolutely determined to continue to press the military and to use the military as, you know, a major first step in this this civil rights struggle, this civil rights movement, which really, you know, reached a lot of momentum during the 1950s with the emergence of Martin Luther King and other African-American leaders, you know, achieved a crescendo during the, uh, the 1960s. The argument in the book is that there is a straight line. There is a straight line from African-American slaves all the way back into the 17th century who resisted oppression and exploitation and violence all the way through Crispus Attucks in the, in the American Revolution, you know, taking up arms in service to their country in uh, a cause that we consider to be patriotic through the uh, Civil War when nearly 200,000 African Americans served in the Union forces to help save the Union and to gain the emancipation of four million slaves and, you know, see a major step forward in the struggle for equality during Reconstruction all the way through World War I, when again, well, even the Spanish-American War, when African-Americans participated in the military. In other words, the military again and again and again has offered opportunity for service and momentum to push forward the, the civil rights movement. And so Doris Miller is very much a part of that story, yeah. And so when did the city of Waco start really grabbing onto that story and having it something yeah. that they really take to heart and, and yeah. you see it all over the place in town now? Yeah, well it's been, gosh, I think it's been seven or eight years now that we've been working on this uh, memorial project. The, uh, the really you know fascinating and, and beautiful part of it is that it's involved people from all over the community, white and black, in deciding upon the design and the construction and the production of the, uh, the memorial. Uh, it, it was a collaborative effort. So people felt involved, they felt invested, they felt respected, they had you know, an impact every step of the way in a project that has been off and on again, rather halting in many respects, but uh, everyone is confident that, we'll, it, that it will happen. You know, earlier I was asking you, you know, Doris Miller lives 24 years. So, yeah. I mean, the life of Doris Miller and yeah. even the events of his life are, yeah. are very brief. And so there's that story, but then there's the story of the meaning yeah. of the life of Doris Miller and what he did and 
the way different communities, I mean, that's what the book yeah. brings out. Different communities have placed meaning on right. that. Right. The one way you can look at it is the fact that, fortunately, here in Waco, we don't have a Confederate statue, which is rather surprising because Waco was and still is in many ways a, you know, a decidedly southern town with very, very strong traditions going back all the way to, you know, before the Civil War. So we don't have that to argue over, have to make uh, decisions about, which makes it even happier to uh, think that, that, that we have the opportunity to do something that's very, very positive and, and, and frankly, very, very serious in its uh, ramifications to uh, really reinforce and dramatize the, the message of Doris Miller. What kind of message can we draw from his life and the impact that he made on the civil rights movement? What kind of message can we draw from the impact that, you know, frankly, he has made and continues to make and will make on Waco. When the dedication does occur in December, it should and it will be a national story. The, the media will come from all over the country, and uh, Waco w- will receive a lot of very, very positive publicity, and it will help sustain the kind of recognition that, that Doris Miller does deserve. When the original price tag of the memorial was put forth seven or eight years ago, it was about a million dollars. You know, and I thought at the time, that's a lot of money. <laughs> you know, first of all, where, where is that money coming from? Well, it's been raised from private sources. We met with former Congressman Chad Edwards a couple of years ago about, you know, ideas to to help us raise money, and he came up with, with some really good ideas. But he said, you know, if this were the 1990s, all I would have to do is make a speech on the floor. You know, when he was in Congress, mm-hmm. the money would, would appear instantly. <laughs> but the good old days are gone. And so a million dollars, I thought, that's a lot of money. And now it's about a million and a half. And we're not there yet. But you can't really put a price yeah. on what this will do. Yeah, I was, I was thinking as you were talking about it, I mean, we still need Doris Miller. Absolutely, yeah. we need Doris Miller. Yeah. What we need to do is need not only as as people here in Waco in Central Texas to take advantage of Doris Miller to raise our visibility and our reputation, but to embrace him. Mm -hmm. And in the process, embrace everyone, everyone in the Waco and Central Texas area and to engage with one another. You know, I just I can't imagine the number of, of school kids that will will come to the memorial, uh, tourists, people from all over the, the country. I like to think that it will be able to take advantage of the Magnolia effect. You know, where do you go in Waco? What is there to see? Go downtown to the the food trucks, you know, go go shopping and, and go across, walk across the suspension bridge to, you know, the Doris Miller Memorial and enjoy the park but there, there on the river and learn a bit, little bit more about Waco's past and how, you know, we're, we're moving forward. We're pressing forward. You know, we're part of a movement. We're part of a trend. We're not simply proud. We, we know how to take action and make a difference and make a statement and, you know, create opportunity and understanding and, and relationships with, with one another. So I have an interesting point. It's going to take a second to be made, but stick with me. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to bring some Navy into it because okay. of Doris Miller. Yeah. So when I was going through boot camp 
there's a, a part at the very end where you do a 24 hour straight exercise and you're just utterly exhausted yeah. and it's, it's really tough. And you're wearing a ball cap that says recruit the entire time. And when you finish that exercise successfully, they replace it with a hat that says Navy. So yeah. you're, you're officially a sailor now. You're yeah. no longer a recruit. Yeah. And it sounds silly. It's, it's a cap changing, but yeah. there's not a dry eye in the place oh, because you've been working yeah. towards this yeah. for two months. Yeah. And you have all your shipmates there. That's what we call each other. Right? Yeah. And everybody's like, we're all sailors now. This is really great. So you identify as sailors, yeah. not white or black. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I got to the Kitty Hawk, it's a big ship and you don't identify as a sailor even anymore. You're yeah. a Kitty Hawk sailor. Yeah. And so I think this statue and Doris Miller's story can bring us together because yeah. we're all Wacoans. Mm -hmm. We're not black. We're not white. Yeah. I mean, you've said it so well. We we understood that from the very beginning. Uh, that that was a major purpose in, you know, committing to this project. You know, we felt like it was it was an opportunity to to pull together in a way like, you know, Waco, the Waco community, broadly speaking, ha had really never done. Is it worth it? Yes, I think it's worth it. And the push will continue, particularly among African-Americans here and elsewhere, to get Doris Miller a, a Congressional Medal of Honor. Yeah. I hope that that, that day will come, and, it, and that will be a very proud day for our community as well. Is there anything else interesting about Doris Miller that most people may not know. I mean, I really liked hearing that yeah. he didn't shoot down a single plane. Yeah. I think that's pretty funny that most people don't know. Yeah. Anything else in your research that came up that was just interesting to you? Well, the fact that he had a, a premonition about mm. not not surviving the war, I think that's 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 pretty interesting. He said that he eventually wanted to go into the, the restaurant or nightclub business <laughs> out on the West Coast. He really liked shore leave on the west coast okay you know going to the restaurants and, and nightclubs and of course they were segregated at the time they were white nightclubs and there were black nightclubs but he really liked the nightclub scene he could he could see himself as a businessman running running a, a nightclub i really like this podcast especially when we're focusing on one person in history yeah because it's really good to paint a picture of who they are like if they walk through the door yeah what their personality would be like. Yeah. And I feel like he would just be a stand-up guy. Oh, you would take an instant liking to him. He was a perfect gentleman in every way. Very, very modest and respectful. But at the same time, uh, his own person. Mm -hmm. Nothing false about him. He was very, very genuine. You know, my dad would sometimes refer to people who show petty deceit. You know, he couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't stand people like that. Doris Miller was the opposite. There was no petty deceit in, in Doris Miller. And so, yeah, you would, you, would really, you would really like him. I think everyone would have, would have liked him. Too bad he didn't live. You know, my dad lived to be 98. He died earlier this year in January. He and, he and Doris Miller were born the same year. Hmm. 1919. They lived in, as I said, they lived in, in two, two different worlds. My dad joined the Navy and was stationed at Pearl. He joined the Navy for the same reason, to escape the Depression. Hmm. Grew up in, in East Texas. Interestingly, he would say, I, I remember he said this many times, he, he would say, the good old days were terrible. <laughs> you know, the Depression was not simply 
economically challenging, it was demoralizing. And he would punctuate that point by saying, I served in the Navy, I survived World War II, I survived Pearl Harbor, I served with the Marines, I got shot at, I saw a lot of combat, I saw a lot of mortality. That was nothing compared to the Depression. Mm. (laughs) He said, we had plenty of food to eat every day on board ship. We ate, he would say, we ate like kings, (laughs) you know. And when he became an officer, you know, he started out as an enlisted man. But because he had a college degree, uh, once the war started, he was promoted without receiving any training. You know, he was just promoted on the spot, a field promotion, as they call it. Yeah, when he became an officer, he really had it like never before. but, But nevertheless, he saw a lot of combat. He was one of the first Americans to step foot in Japan at Nagasaki a couple of weeks after the uh, the bomb dropped. But he, he would say that was nothing compared to the <laughs> Depression. So they had a lot in common. That's my point. Doris Miller had a lot in common, but they lived in, in segregated worlds, mm-hmm. you know, worlds apart. My dad came out of the Navy. He had the world by the tail. He had all kinds of opportunities. But despite the the slow but steady progress of the civil rights movement, someone someone like Doris Miller would not have had the opportunities that my dad had. Yeah. And my dad took advantage of those those opportunities. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, hi, hi, historians are all about context. We, you know, we not only like to tell stories, we like to make arguments, like to reach conclusions. We're interested in people, individual people. We're interested in groups of people. But most of all, to find meaning in history, we're interested in context. How do things fit in? How do things relate to one another? That's absolutely crucial to understanding Doris Miller. You have to understand Doris Miller and his world to fully appreciate him. And I think the book does that. I mean, <clears throat> it connects the long life of Doris yeah. Miller and, and what it what it's meant. Yeah, the, so. le- the legacy, mm-hmm. the ongoing impact. Mm-hmm. And we're still we're yeah. still realizing that. That's right. Yeah. So I, I want to mention the book again. It's uh, our co-author, T. Michael Parrish. The book is Doris Miller, Pearl Harbor, and the Birth of the Civil Rights Movement. It's a Texas A&M Press book. came out last year, 2017, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's available where all good books are available. <laughs> I know you can get it at Texas A&M Press on Amazon. You can that. go to the yeah. Evil Empire Amazon <laughs> and then buy it uh, more cheaply than it's advertised on the A&M Press uh, website for sure. <laughs> we'll strike that. Yeah, but th- but I want to thank lie. you, Mike, and thank you, Dr. Parrish, for being with us. My thank pleasure. You so much, yeah. My pleasure, indeed. That's a wrap. That was great. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. As he dropped the guns that she hated In the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos and wake home Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and wake home I'll walk straight in old San Antonio
And the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El Bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio 